Welcome to Dev Jams, where we discuss amazing projects that were done by Cloudinary's developer community. And frankly, those projects are inspiring, innovative, or just things that we think are worth some attention. My name is Sam Brace, and I am the Director of Customer Education for Cloudinary. And joining me for this episode, and frankly, every episode, is Becky Peltz, who works with me on the customer education team. Becky, it's great to have you again. Hey, it's good to be here, and I really enjoy this episode. It was inspiring to me, and I also really appreciate the way that Chris created an app where he sort of did a little trick to get Cloudinary involved. And it kind of goes along with his CSS tricks. So this is a lot of fun to watch. I completely agree. And it's definitely a case where what Chris and also our guest host, Eric, who works also with us at Cloudinary, but is truly a amazing developer, evangelist, enthusiast, advocate in his own right. What these two people bring to this episode is, in my opinion, a wonderful thing. And what Chris is going to walk through in this episode, showing us how he was able to build a microsite associated with his main CSSTricks.com site and showing how he was able to do things where they were able to work with Netlify and serverless functions, being able to take screenshots of various code samples on the web using a service called Puppeteer, and also even using static site generators such as Elevendy. There's a lot that can be unpackaged here of this episode because what this is starting to show are lots of interesting ways that you can start working with Cloudinary, working with APIs when you're going and building that first or third or 15th Jamstack project. I think there's a lot of learning nuggets that's associated with this overall episode. And I'm really glad that Chris, as well as Eric, was able to share a lot of that here. Yeah, I think developers are really excited about Jamstack now. It's like we went from everything was on the server to full stack, and now we've got Jamstack. And trying to understand that is very important now, I think. And, and I think this sheds a little light on that, what you can do. And as a, again, inspired me. And so let's jump right into it and take the time to hear what Chris has gone and built using Cloudinary and also some of the other things that they talk about. There's a few things that I think you definitely will want to pay attention to as you start getting into this episode, such as one of the things that Eric goes and shows is some of the capabilities with Cloudinary transformations, and also some of the ways that we can now transform to AVIF, which is a very bleeding edge format for image delivery. So lots of things that you can unpackage of this. Let's take the time to go through it. Without any further ado, here's Chris. Chris, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you here. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's really, really good because I think we're going to have a great conversation about some of the amazing things that you've been able to accomplish in this project that we're focusing on here. But before we dive into all those details, because that's really why we're here, I do want to take the chance to introduce our special guest host for this particular episode, which is Eric Portis, who works with me and Becky here at Cloudinary. But in a different department, in a different role. But Eric also is someone that I'm always amazed at the things that he does. So I'm very privileged to have him here. I think Becky would say the same. So Eric, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much. Glad to be here. Now, Eric, why are you here? Like, what do you ultimately do for Cloudinary? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm in the office of the CTO, which is a 
fancy sounding title, but my particular role is web platform advocate. So I'm supposed to be kind of a bridge between Cloudinary and the people making uh, decisions about the whole web platform. So, you know, I try to actually shape some specs and, and make them go the direction that we want them to go to make the web a better place for images. And, you know, make sure that Cloudinary's uh, staying on top of the latest stuff that's happening in the world of browsers and specs too. And why am I here? Uh, I have a good relationship with Chris and me and 11D go way back. The project we're going to be talking about is focused on uh, a static site generator 11D that Chris is using. And yeah, I love it. And I love the way Chris is using it. And I'm excited to talk about it. This is one thing that I love about Eric because he's just so humble, but there's a lot behind this, of course, where I remember I learned about Eric way back in 2014 when you, I was reading Smashing Magazine and I read an article about responsive images and I was like, this is just very well done. So it's, it's one of those cases where it's like, oh, if we're going to be talking about images on the web at all, I think we're in good hands having Eric as well as Chris in this case. There's a lot to ultimately unpack with these two very, very smart individuals here. And with that said, Chris, Talk to us a little bit about what you've been doing, some of the things that you come across in case people are not familiar with you coming into this episode. Oh, sure. I mean, I think in the context of this show, the most relevant thing is CSS Tricks, which is just a blog I've had for a long time, <laughs> not quite two decades, but getting there, I guess. And there was a blog post that a guest author pitched me not that long, you know, whatever, six months ago. And then the idea was like, let's put together one of those, speaking of smashing magazines or a list post with all the best coding fonts, you know, which is, you know, kind of a cheesy article, but also sometimes kind of fun. Sometimes if you're looking for something like that, you're almost like in the mood for that. Show me a list post, show me the 12 hottest coding fonts, you know? And I was like, you know what, if you're going to do this, that's cool. Not our bread and butter style post, you know, but let's go for it. But I want you to do a really good job. I want you to make the list really curated and have them actually be actually good coding fonts, not just you lightly Googled it for two seconds and came up with the list and <laughs> barfed it into a blog post. I want there to be like a curated list. And I think that you should, you know, take really good screenshots of them, highlighting why they're good. I want you to be able to talk about them, you know, just like set some parameters in place for this guest author. And they actually did a pretty good job of all that. But then as things do, sometimes it just kind of pittered out, like you don't hear back and, you know, whatever. And it, ultimately, they stayed kind of involved with the thing. But I was like, I was so picky about what I asked for in this post that it made me think like, I should probably just be involved and do it, you know? And, you know, sometimes technological things like the cards just kind of fall into place with other stuff that you're working on. I've been into, not like deeply, but playing with it enough, Puppeteer, which is like a programmatic way to control Chrome, the browser, and people use it for kind of all sorts of things, but there's some really big use cases for it. One of them is like running tests on your code, like go to cloudinary.com, click the login button. Did a modal show up? Yes, good. Your test passes. You're allowed to push code now, you know? That's like one big use case for it. Another really big use case for it is go to this URL and take a picture of it and give me a PNG or whatever. I don't even know what, what it'll spit out, but it spits out something. Now you have an image, you know? Okay, cool. So 
if we're going to do this coding font thing, maybe we set up an HTML file and a CSS file that loads up that coding font in with some like nice example code. And we'll do this the same for each font. That way it's a one-to-one -one comparison that we're looking at. And we'll tell Puppeteer to take a screenshot of that. So now we have like, we can code ourselves up a programmatic way to take a bunch of screenshots of these coding fonts, which is what I wanted for the blog post. But if you're gonna do that, it's like you might as well put it on GitHub because that's where like all the code goes these days, you know? And then I was like, you know, it doesn't take that much to leap from that to like, let's just put a little navigation together for it. So you can click between the different fonts and stuff. And then it's from there, it's not much of a leap to be like, you know what, screw it. Let's just make a whole website for it, you know? <laughs> So that was the the idea behind that. I don't know if you exactly asked me that, but that's what kind of brought us here. <laughs> it is what brought us here, absolutely. When, I mean, ultimately, the project that we're talking about has a very big tie to this project that you're talking about, CSS Tricks. So absolutely, mm. in this case. But other things that you've worked on, CodePen, of course, I'm sure many people that are watching this episode have done something with CodePen when they're trying to display HTML or work with CSS or JavaScript or just show working code in a live environment. You're behind a lot of that. Yeah. Well, I'm a co-founder of CodePen. Yeah. yeah. Also a <laughs> project getting on in the years, so we're, we're working hard on that. So yeah, if you've seen CodePen, that's me too. Do I do some podcasting myself too, hence the microphone and such at it with the, on a show called Shop Talk Show with my friend Dave Rupert. So the, it's but it's that's it. It's just those three things. <laughs> <laughs> but it ultimately is a really good segue to be able to show like not only is this a case where we have an expert when it comes to this project that we're talking about, but you're also someone that is extremely well versed in the web, understands web development from many different angles. So I think there's a lot that our audience members are going to be able to take away from this. That's right. I do. Yeah. Good job, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> it's exploding. So talk to us about the project. So the, obviously this is something where Eric mentioned, this is dealing with 11D. This is dealing with potentially mm -hmm. ways to work with content that is locally stored, not web accessible. We're using Cloudinary for portions of it. There's a lot of interesting right. aspects about this. Let's start unraveling some yep. of those parts. Yeah. Well, I looped in the, the puppeteer thing right away because that was kind of fundamental to the idea of the project. The project, again, is coding-fonts.cssstricks.com. And it was, it's a, I just call it a microsite because that's, I don't know if that has an official definition or anything, but I've been partial to me, you know, turning little ideas like this into little entire websites. I've done it a couple of times now. I did one that's at serverless.css-tricks.com and one that's at conferences.css-tricks.com. And it's like when an idea has a little bit more life to it, I end up slapping it at a subdomain because it's like, I don't know, it's a nice place for them and they can be kind of CSS tricks branded, but yet use a, a, a bit of technology that, that isn't tied to anything else. Like CSS tricks is a WordPress site and kind of like proudly so, but it doesn't mean that every single other thing I ever want to build in my life is also a WordPress thing, you know? These subdomains then can become a repo. They can be hosted wherever because DNS can just point wherever, you know? So some of them are like, for example, on Netlify. And that's cool because 
I like Netlify, and I like the Jamstack approach, and I like the static generator approach sometimes. So, you know, this is just an example of one of those little projects that I just kind of get a kick out of. And now I have kind of like a little way that I do them that gives them some consistency. There are so many static site generators. How did you pick Eleventy? Yeah, in a way, it's because I like kind of like don't care. Like it could have been, there literally is hundreds of them and I could just pick one off a shelf. It, it, in a way, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter to me, but Eleven has got good press, you know, a lot of people are into it. And there's like one dude behind it named Zach Leatherman and Zach's just a really nice guy and he did a good job with it. And I happen to be in a Slack with him. So if I need to ask him questions, I can just do that. That's a pretty good... <laughs> Those are enough reasons for me to pick it, like always, unless I have a really strong reason not to, you know? So it's just kind of my go-to one. And then like any other piece of technology, the more you pick it, the more you just know it. So then there's even less reason to pick anything else because you just already know how that one works. So it's kind of fine. But static state generators in general, the only reason I used one at all in this case, and in the in literally the case of all these microsites, is because... They can be a public repo on GitHub. I mean, it could be anywhere else, but GitHub's just where the action is, you know? And more than just being on GitHub, that's nice that it's on GitHub. So you could take pull requests for like, hey, I fixed this thing. Here's a typo. Let me fix this accessibility thing. That's great and all. But what really mattered to me is that the content itself is also on GitHub. So with these static site generators, this is not required. You know, your static site generator can hook up to cloud databases and I can do all kinds of fancy stuff these days, but I on purpose didn't do that. I put all the content as just markdown files in it. So in the case of this site that we're talking about, all these fonts have a markdown file that represent them. They say, this is a font, it's called Operator Mono. It's got a bunch of metadata in it. It's by this designer, it's by this foundry. This is the license, this is what it costs. Does it have ligatures or not? But it has all this information in the markdown file. Now, if somebody else wants to add one to this site, they make a markdown file in that same format and submit it to the repository. And I accept the pull request probably, unless it's a garbage font or you did a bad job or something. Oh, yeah, but that, what, yeah, because I, I people say Jam, you know, Jamstack, Jam is JavaScript APIs and markup, and I'm like, why yeah. would you use markup if you can use Markdown? Why would why would they call it? Markdown? Uh, I think that's actually like a a confusing. Yes, you're not alone in that confusion. And it doesn't mean that though. Markup in the case of Jamstack just means like anything that produces HTML. You know, but and then people get confused the other direction too, and they say, "Oh, if Jamstack, then does that mean I'm forced to use Markdown?" And that's also <laughs> not true. It's like, no, I, I don't know. It's just I think that got a little messed up in in people's heads a little bit. But the, I think the concept of it is more just like pre-render, get stuff yeah. into yeah. static HTML files and ship that. Uh, however, that happens is fine. The point is, there's not like a PHP server or something spitting out that stuff. That's what Jamstack doesn't mean. But that content model, this wasn't a gamble because this has already proven itself to me time and time again. That serverless site that I mentioned, there must be hundreds of pull requests on it for the content for that site. Like it works, at least it works for me, which is pretty cool. If I could take pull requests on content for CSS tricks, I probably would. 
it's just WordPress doesn't really have a good story for that. You know, I wish they did, but they just kind of don't. And I don't know. I just think that's really neat. And in fact, that world is very much evolving too. You know, there's things like the Netlify CMS that you can attach to this thing and give people a, you know, the barrier to entry for like a nerd site, say, hey, it's on GitHub, do pull requests there. That's great if you're dealing with other developers who are familiar with that. But even that door is starting to get knocked down a little bit. And you can say, here, if you want to add some content or change some content to the site, here's a UI to do it, which opens the door a little bit wider to, to pull requests. But I'm just really, I'm bullish on the idea of allowing other people to suggest changes and add content to websites. And that's not, I don't know if that's fundamental to Jamstack, but it just so happens that that works really nicely in that world. And I'm all about it. I mean, I launched this thing only a couple of weeks ago and there's been tons of contributions already, fixes and new content. And so in fact, most of the contributions have been content, which is exactly what I want, you know? As someone who contributed a conference to your conferences site, I can say uh, from experience that the bar is very low. <laughs> it's very easy to submit. And it, it's fun. It's somewhere between like a wiki page and uh, a curated list. It's not quite as wild west as a wiki, but not quite as locked down as, as a CSS tricks post. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. basically I get an email from GitHub that says somebody made a PR and I'm like, looks good. Click button. Yeah. yeah. I mean, chances so are your... I might fix a little. Yeah. This is your first uh, foray into accepting image content though, right? Like the whole screenshot setup, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with. How you design that and how easy it is to actually run. But yeah. that, that's a whole other kettle of fish than asking people to author markdown. It is. And so the bar is a lot higher here. I wasn't sure what I was going to get because it's not just, in this one case of this site, it's not just put a markdown file in a folder and submit the pull request. Maybe it could be someday, because as you know, things right. like GitHub Actions and stuff, it could be as fancy as the pull request has information in the markdown file that runs a GitHub action, which runs Puppeteer, which generates images, which you upload to Cloudinary or something, you know, it could be that. <laughs> That's where the web is headed. That's some weird stuff. In this case, I ask people to run it locally. So yeah. there's information in the contributing, you know, in the readme file, it says, Do, would you like to add a font to this thing? I need you to make a markdown file. I actually also need you to make a CSS file that links up your font and stuff. And at the command line, you got to, you know, npm install, and then you got to type out a command that says, please take the screenshots for this thing. And it, you know, it's not particularly lightweight. When you NPM install, it's going to pull down Puppeteer, which is a full-on yeah. copy of Chrome and all this stuff. But people have been doing it. And theoretically, you just wait. You know, you type the command and you just sit there for a minute, depending on what platform you're on. Like I'm on a Mac here, you'll see a little icon for Chrome pop up in the dock and you're like, whoa, what's that fancy? Oh, that's automated Chrome being run and producing images. And they get placed in the right place so you don't have to move them around or do anything. They just appear where they should appear. And then rock and roll, your PR is kind of ready to go. But this is where some Cloudinary tech and Eleventy tech and smooshing around needed to happen because of course, when they're adding a font and they're working locally, they can run a little local server and look at the complete site on their local machine. And 
So that's fine, but the images need to be linked up, you know, the images of these, of the font. And I guess the fundamental problem is in production, we wanted to serve them from Cloudinary, but we can't do that locally because those images, they only exist on that user's machine. I guess locally through an API or something, we could have them uploaded to Cloudinary, but I just didn't want to go there. That adds even yeah. more complexity to the party. The fetch API for Cloudinary is perfect for stuff like this. Just like this image is ultimately going to be at a canonical URL somewhere on the web. Cloudinary is more than capable of just yanking that down and displaying it. Let's just wait till it's on production to do that. But that then that leaves the local story like shrug emoji, you know, like what are we going to do locally <laughs> then? And the answer is actually pretty simple. It's like <laughs> because the Cloudinary fetch API is just a URL prefix, it's like it's either there or it's not. So on production, it's there. On dev, it's not. That's it, you know. So just to clarify, are you even uploading the image to GitHub or is the image always just on the local machine until it gets fetched? It does it does go to GitHub, which to is GitHub. questionable. Like maybe we shouldn't. I know that I don't know if I can speak super intelligently about that, but I think there's something called like Git LFS that's like in an opportunity for you to not put the images directly into your Git repo which has the advantage then of that Git repository being very lightweight instead of like all these binary images being in the, the Git repo. I don't know. I don't know enough about that well, to even go there. This is a good point though, because I've used, in training, I've put images on GitHub and had this kind of guilty feeling. And I'm yeah. wondering when GitHub is going to get into managing images or, you know, having someone That's manage. A good point. Like, you know, I think right. many people, we are working with images and video now that, they are going to end mm -hmm. up there. And then here's some other something that you'd want to avoid is that I don't want, I could with Puppeteer or other command line utilities write code such that, okay, take a really big screenshot, then take a medium one, then take a small one, put them all in the folder and upload all of those to GitHub too, which is like, yeah, that's even more complexity, even more weight for the repo just more stuff to go wrong. Because I'll tell you, Puppeteer is not the most super duper reliable thing in the world. <laughs> There's just going to be random failures. It'll just yeah. run and it'll take five out of six of them. And you'll be like, yeah. cool. And the only way to know to fix it is just run it again. And maybe you'll get all six of them this time, you know? So there's that. And if so, if you turn six into 18, there's just going to be all the more failures, you know? So that was that was kind of a bummer. And but the idea is now th this is just how I think, and it's been for years now because Cloudinary exists. Take the biggest one you can, make it <laughs> ten thousand pixels wide. Who cares, you know? Because you you're never going to serve it like that. You're only going to serve it through a Cloudinary URL, which resizes it to the correct size anyway. So you might as well make the canonical one that will never be downloaded ever, just enormous, you know. So yeah, that's what we do. Amazing. Although in this case, I don't think we make it enormous, enormous. I mean, there's no reason to <laughs> just shoot the biggest one you need, you know? And that's what, that enormous one is what people are looking at locally when they run without the fetch prefix. And then when right, it runs- Right, because who cares locally, you know? Right. But then once it goes up into Cloudinary, you know, you have some nice URL prefixes that shrink things down and some responsive image markup to make sure that people only get the pixels that they need. Yeah, exactly. That way with, you know, you can do that responsive images syntax 
easily because you just change the fetch params to be the right size. Like you'd be the 1200 one, the 800 one, the 400 one, whatever it is. There's a lot on a project like this. I, I admit, I just kind of like pull some numbers out of my head and go for it. You know, I didn't exactly do a lot of analyzing math, but at least we're not serving absolutely enormous images to tiny devices and stuff. I'm sure it's helpful to some degree, at least. But that means it's an extra lie on local. I didn't write the code so complex that it doesn't serve responsive images markup on local. It does. It yeah. just it's the same source for all of them. So it's just so a funny. big fat, yeah. fat lie. You know? Yeah. The browser says, I'll go and pick the smallest of these images and then loads a gigantic it's the image. Biggest one. <laughs> <laughs> but again, on local host, who cares? You know, that's yeah. that's not the, yeah. the story. But they yeah. do, you know, it's funny, the more images that get added to the project, if anybody wants to contribute, you know, one of the step ones is to clone the repo and they gotta sit there and pull down hundreds of images, you know. Not super ideal, but hey, what are you gonna do? That's just common to any project, really. Yeah. So I think there could be someone watching this video who might not know what we mean by fetch because fetch is also like a mm. term for Ajax, you know, going out and fetching something. Do you want to talk about fetch and how you got yeah. connected to this in cloud? That's Air? funny. Is fetch kind of is Ajax, isn't it? Like there's a real literal yeah, fetch API yeah, in JavaScript. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you all can speak to it better yeah. than I can. What I think of Cloudinary fetch is like, there's kind of two ways to link to an image on Cloudinary. One of them is I've uploaded it directly. I use the media library or the API or something, and the canonical image lives on Cloudinary itself. There, That is where the image is. I think that's kind of cool that you offer that because it opens the door for projects that don't have any other canonical home. Like if I was going to build an app absolutely from scratch and have an upload your own avatar capability, I might use Cloudinary to do that because that's where the home for those images can be. Like, why not? You know, at least I don't have to think about where else they can go. I don't know how common that is. I think it's oh, in the world of circles of web dev I live in is probably more common that you're going to put that storage somewhere that theoretically you feel like you have more control over, although control is just an illusion, isn't it? But you'd probably put it in like an S3 bucket. Like I'm going to upload an avatar. I'm going to put that in an S3 bucket. And then when I actually use it on the web, I'll prefix the URL to it through Cloudinary. So I guess when I say Cloudinary fetch, it means you're using this special URL format that Cloudinary offers that you put before the URL to your canonical image and then the magic happens. Cloudinary ultimately ends up serving it, but in a split second, it has to go get the original first and catch it yeah, on so their like side. Following up what you said, when you upload, you get this unique identifier from Cloudinary, but when you right. fetch, the URL you're fetching becomes the unique identifier. That's the unique identifier? Oh, I didn't yeah. even know that. That's yeah, some so behind the scenes actually, stuff. There is something up there in your media library, but it's just, it's got a public ID of your... Yeah, because you, yeah, you can still find them in your media library, right? They're still, they yeah. still get there. It's just not like, you don't have to think of it like yeah. as canonically there. Yeah, you didn't have to go cool. to the media library to upload it and you didn't have to write any code and expose your AP, you know, your credentials. No. You know what's interesting to me about it though, that I have to, like, let's say I make, like there's like a, we change something like a typo or whatever, or like change like what 
the code that's going to be in the screenshot be like, oh, I forgot to put a closing div in there or something for the screenshot I'm trying to take of the code. If I rerun Puppeteer and take new screenshots and send them up, they're not, they won't be right on production because the URL didn't change. So people that had it cached on the Cloudinary side, it's not that. I, what's cool is I can go into the media library, find it quick and just delete them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that way it'll grab the new ones or, you know, probably even better just because it would be easier would be to every time that runs locally, just increment some thing. So the query parameter is off oh, yeah. by one or something. Yeah. 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 Stick, yeah. stick a V with a, with a, with a date string in it or something. Exactly <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah. It would be bad news for Cloudinary that if I made the query string different every page load or something. Now I'm caching like <laughs> hundreds of images of these. Yeah. That's not that's not good for your bill probably. So don't do that. But do change it when it when the actual image changes. That's fine. But you kind of yeah, bring yeah. out another good thing about using fetch is you you get your image out on the CDN and now it's available geographically locally all over the place. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if if you could share this information, but like, is most of Cloudinary usage through Fetch, or half, or what? You know, it's just, I, it's just amazing to me to think about. Like, is it popular or not? Well, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but it's a great question, and now I'm probably going to want to go ask somebody who might know. <laughs> but there are some other ways, you know, to even besides Fetch. There's, you know, we've talked about this auto upload. Have you explored that? Auto upload? Yeah. No, I don't think In which okay, case you cool. actually set up a configuration and you map to a remote location and then you can just use your mapping key to grab things. Mm -hmm. Then you have a, your own canonical image still, but it's also, it's like, yeah, you know, back, which one's canonical moves, then? Yeah, it actually moves the image in and, and the key is the whatever, however you've mapped it with whatever the name of the original mm. file is. It's, yeah. it's, the ability that it can live on Cloudinary by itself seems unique. You know, there's other, uh, other I don't know, players in this market seem to only do the fetch. They're like, we'll only stand in front of your canonical images. But it's kind of cool that Cloudinary can be the canonical source too. You know, it's nice that it kind of goes both ways. A long time ago, when 11D was very young, I wrote a little short code for it that did responsive images using Cloudinary, using Fetch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the first two requests that I got were one, how do I make this work locally? And not just mm. when it's live on the internet. And then the second was, what if I don't actually want to keep all my images in my GitHub repository? <laughs> oh, <laughs> and nice. I just have, and want to have them actually be in Cloudinary. We're two or three years on and I've solved neither of those issues. So I'm glad, I'm glad you at least <laughs> solved, solved one of them for, for everybody here. Yeah, and you know, this has been solved a lot of ways. And by solved, I mean that, that one of, I want to use fetch, but I want to, I, I can't locally, right? I need a different yeah. story for local. And so we talked about 11D a bunch and it's not the only technology that could solve this problem. You know, of course not. Right. But I guess the way that I ended up doing it was that 11D has these like data, data abilities. It's kind of like the, probably the coolest trick that 11D has really is that it, you can set up these because 
ultimately it's an HTML processor, right? It doesn't do anything else. It doesn't care about your JavaScript. It doesn't care about your CSS. It's just for processing your HTML files. And it supports all these different formats, you know, like it's liquid or whatever, I think is the default one. I almost always pick Nunjux because I have more, I don't know, history using that syntax, which is like a HTML preprocessor from Mozilla. And in that syntax, because I'm now writing in like .njk files or whatever, I get these double curly brace things in which to do HTML templating. And what those... It, it's super flexible, but I can just set them up anywhere. They could be node and environment variables, or you can make these files that are like data.js files, or I forget exactly how where they go and how it works in 11D, but it's very natural feeling. The, the, the variables that are set up in JavaScript that expose themselves to the HTML processing. So I can do stuff like, I'm gonna, I don't know, set up my name, Chris. And now Chris is available in double curly brackets to all my templates. So I can go curly bracket, curly bracket, Chris, and it will spit out Chris Coyer or something. It's just like templating available. It just feels very natural and nice. So in this case of connecting local development and Cloudinary and all that stuff, I basically take that fetch URL that I have for Cloudinary and make it a variable. And so then when I do in my HTML, I'm literally about to put an HTML on, or an image into my HTML, image source equals, and I need to put the source to the image. I can put like curly bracket, curly bracket, cloudinary fetch URL goes here, then the actual path to the image after that. And so on local development, I can code it up such that that cloudinary fetch URL is nothing, blank, an empty string, nothing. And so on local, it's just the relative file path to the image. Great. And then on production, I can change an environment variable. And there's a bunch of ways to do that. But it's pretty simple and normal, everyday thing that people do. In my case, I tell Netlify, which is the thing that will run my build process before my code goes out to production. I put like capital, like env equals production then run 11D and that like yelly all caps thing sets an environment variable that says this is production. <laughs> and in my data files, it's like, okay, well, in the case that it's production, I want that Cloudinary URL to be this fetch URL thing. So now all of a sudden, and all my templates that use image source equals whatever, all of a sudden, all the images are prefixed with the fetch URL then. So it's cool. So local development, no fetch URL. Production has the fetch URL. It's really as simple as that. It's not a it's not a terribly complicated thing, but it just means then in production you get advantage. You can totally take advantage of all Cloudinary has to offer, and on local nobody has to worry about it or think about it. And in fact, I think most people that contribute to this project they have no idea that's what's happening. Chris, I'm dying to see it. Is there any way you can show us some of the things that well, you just The website itself looks like this. So here's all these coding fonts. You can scroll up and down. It's, it's a list. You know, there's probably three times that many in the world. Again, remember, we were trying to scope it down to ones that are kind of good. <laughs> Although one of the first pull requests was Comic <laughs> New here, which is kind of like <laughs> a Comic Sans looking coding font. Maybe not an everyday one. but Comic it, you Sans know, means it, fun. Yeah, <laughs> it could be worse. It could be worse. This is not a live code editor. 
I don't know if that was the world greatest choice. You know, another option of is to not serve these as images would be to have him just embedded the font and show the dang thing with the real font. There's some advantages to that. I mean, then people could see how it actually renders on their machine and all that. We just picked not doing this par partly because it was meant to be a blog post where you'd never be able to do that, really. And two was that some of these fonts cost money. One of my favorites is Mono Lisa. I love this font. That's one of my favorites. My favorite before that, and I still switch back and forth, honestly, was Operator Mono. It, I really just love these two fonts. Both of them straight up cost money. And I would have to buy a license just to use them on this site. And I was like, no, you know, I don't like this site that much that I'm going to spend money on buying a license just for this little micro site. Like, that's not happening. And I wanted it's to like open that door for any. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're kind of a lot. Operator Mono is like 300 bucks or something. Mono Lisa is maybe like 100 you, or something. You... So I'm changing between HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and then an output of just the characters and some comparison and stuff. And in fact, there's some interesting open issues now with suggestions from font authors on how we might change some of this for the better but see the all eight of these and by eight i mean html css javascript characters in both light and dark mode so each font has eight images for it and so this is not live code you can't edit it and play with it like i said just for licensing reasons we thought this would be easier to do so that's still you know it's as many fonts as there are in this list times eight canonically and then much more than that when you factor in responsive images. So I'm on production here. So if I look at the source code for the image, you'll see that it has the source set syntax. All of them use the Cloudinary fetch URL at different sizes. It looks like it went 1600, 1200, and 600, um, whatever. Again, I just guessed at those numbers kind of thing. But see how, you know, if this gets loaded then at a super small iPhone size or something and with caching off here it probably just that's terrible how small it looks but I'm sure in real life I'm sure it looks a little bit more readable when it's really close to your face and all that so uh, you know in this real life situation somebody busts open their phone visits this URL they're probably going to get the 600 width version of this image thanks to Cloudinary Fetch you know the original isn't that size but that's what's going to get requested so that was the whole point of this little journey. In fact, <laughs> I don't know if the video picked it up, but I saw real quick when I turned off DevTools and I went back to the size that this was a little blurry just for a second and you saw the browser request the higher res version of it. So because oh. the caching was off on that and it requested the smaller image and then all of a sudden the image got much larger because I'm just displaying it larger, I could see that kind of behind the scenes magic work. Do you have the code? Um the GitHub code that shows how you set up that template. So, and, and There's a blog post that kind of goes into the details of the specifics is probably more worth yeah. looking at, but the I do, it is available on GitHub here too. We'll dig into the source real quick, see if I can actually find what I'm talking about. The go into source and then underscore data. This is how Cloudinary like exposes that data to its templates before it processes them. So when you do module.exports, anything that's in images.js or foo.js or cloudinary.js or whatever gets then exported and you can use like images.image location, images.url prefix, images that those just become available to your 
HTML preprocessors. So I could have just done module.exports, you know, in names.js, Chris is Chris or something, and then I have that available. I, I, hopefully that wasn't too <laughs> obtuse, but all, all four of these things then become available to my templates to use. And notice I'm testing to see if I'm in production or not. It tests to see if the production environment variable is true. And if it is, then <laughs> what is this? And, and it's not the deploy preview. That's a little like little fancy dance we had to do to make sure that Netlify's developer previews also didn't use Cloudinary fetch, even though it looks like it's production and Cloudinary is doing the builds. I didn't want Cloudinary to pull from those production previews in Netlify. Like those are still kind of like localhost. It's not till they get to really truly production where we kind of unleash the beast here. And then uh, Cloudinary fetch URLs are not query parameters. They, you know, they happen in the middle of the URL for whatever reason. I'm sure you all have good reasons for that, but at least then it's one prefix. I don't have to put the fetch and then the resource and then query parameters at the end of it. So in a way, it's kind of convenient that they're not query parameters. But it makes three of them, and then I use them in the templates. Font page. Yeah, this. Oh, yeah, look at that. I found it right away. Here's where the actual image gets output, and it has the prefix, large, medium, and small. Then it outputs the location, which would either be a... Again, with the Cloudinary fetch URL, it needs a fully qualified URL to pull from. I can't put the fetch URL and then put a relative path. It needs to ha have the full-on HTTP colon slash slash coding fonts dot CSS tricks dot, you know, it needs the whole thing, not just the relative file path, which is the rest of this. And then I have to, you know, cobble together the rest of the puppeteer makes those eight screenshots and they're named in a special way. It, they're named HTML slash light or dark, you know? So the, this is really, this feels more complicated than it is really, but it's just cobbles together the correct paths in either production or development for where those images are. I guess these three lines of code are basically what brought us here today. <laughs> this <laughs> yeah. is why I've brought you all here together. So two, two cool cloudinary things I want to call out. One is that I saw in yeah. your, um, the fetch prefixes that you're writing, you're using F auto Q auto, um, which is a mm -hmm. particularly cool combination. That means that even though these images, they get stored from Puppeteer are PNGs, correct? Probably. Um, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, like they if you won't load... be served as PNGs, right? They'll be served as probably WebP or whatever fancy thing y'all are doing these days. Yeah, they get. I mean, they get served as PNG when it makes sense for them to be served as PNG. But if you load this up in in Chrome right now, and I just dragged one to the desktop, and I got a WebP, and I think it was a lossless Let's WebP. See. Me too. But... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, cool. And, and we could you know. see that happening, couldn't we? In in Dev Tools here, look at them all: WebP, 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 WebP. You yeah, know? all WebPs. And, you know, maybe next year those will be Avis, <laughs> right? Like you won't have to change your code at all. Yeah, I was going to ask you all about that. You know, some people are getting on, on board with that, but it doesn't. I'm sure that takes some complicated engineering effort to get there, huh? Uh, I mean, you can nice. play around with it right now. If you, wanted to, <laughs> if you wanted to make a fork of this and change all your extensions to .avif, uh, we, we'll render them and you can send them to... Uh, really? Will this work? To Chrome anyway. Uh, yeah, that'll work. No, Oops. why won't it work? Oh, well. If you do F auto, change it to F avif. 
Nice. See, and there's a little bit of spinning. This is what I was, I've seen this too, because I've used another service that does them for you. It takes a hot second to make an AVIF, doesn't it? Literally a hot second if you're by the machine that's doing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It requires a little juice to get those done. That's cool though. Let's compare the sizes just for fun. We got the oh. WebP and the AVIF. I'm only sharing my browser windows. You can't see it. So the AVIF was 49K and the WebP is... 37k. So in this case, the WebP1. So if I was using Cloudinary, I would trust that F Auto would know to serve the WebP anyway, because in this case, WebP1. That's what's so tricky about this new world to me that I don't trust myself to get right is that I need something else to decide which one is better. Because it's not, I think AVIF wins a, a lot, but not always, right? It, right. Something our, needs to decide. Yeah. yeah. Our life got a lot more complicated. It used to be there was a one-to-one -one map between browsers and the ideal format for that browser. You know, if you're in yeah. Chrome, serve a WebP. If you're in Safari, serve a JPEG 2000. Uh, that's no longer the case. Now you have Safari supporting WebP, and uh, mm. pretty soon I think most browsers are going to support AVIF. And so our decision trees are getting a little bit more complicated. But that's tremendous value from the Cloudinary perspective because I don't yeah. want to ever have to make that call that is not appealing to me because you know the responsive images syntax i already don't like <laughs> i already don't want to be responsible for that i don't want how to did you write that. that how did you write that sizes by the way <laughs> i don't even know eric i probably asked you <laughs> no <laughs> but you have helped me with that in the past sizes yeah. i hate even more than source set i don't say hate i i think it's fun to play with this but i think that's a lot to ask an author yeah. to figure out what the perfect source set and size is and this is one image in one layout if your website right. is more complicated and i decided to put an image over here in the sidebar this is all wrong all of it is <laughs> right. wrong and you have to do it again okay. and figure it out Maybe i just don't time. like it I want to put image source equals, you know, my cool image dot JPEG in whatever I link to it from. And I don't care if I have to pay for Cloudinary to get it. It should do all the stuff. It should be in the right format. It should serve the right size. It should, it should be optimized perfectly. It should know that it doesn't need to render at all because it's behind a, it's under the fold or something, you know, like I, right, right. I want the best. I want everything, you know, and that's just pie in the sky. So it's just fun to think about, you know, I'm not like demanding it of the world. I just think, you know, <laughs> images are, are heavy and there's, it would just be a lot of value to the world if this stuff got even simpler than it is. I'm so glad we were able to pull this off so far, but yeah, but what we were saying about images is this would get, you know, four times more complicated if I also then had to do the format changes too. And I couldn't even yeah. use image. I'd have to use picture. Because picture is yep. the one that is capable of, of changing yeah. the, the format. Image source set is not. And so and that's just way more verbose. Super verbose. Yeah. I'd probably punt on it. I probably wouldn't even do it. I'd be like, ah, screw it. Jake yeah. But your friend Dave Rupert, I believe that's what his response to image uh, solution is. Str just uh, send a, a 1.5x to everybody, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. The least you can do, though, is just prefix it with the Cloudinary thing with F Auto Q Auto, because you right. get a ton of value from that. You get more value than that than from responsive images on the whole. I think you taught me that, or at least maybe not blanketly true, but is often true. Serving an optimized, yeah. correctly formatted image, you get more value out of on the whole than serving the right sized image. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, often true. Have you done any performance tracking to take a look at 
what Cloudinary is actually doing for you here or, or how these pages actually I perform? Mean, I assume they're I like generally just, fast. I just kind of trust it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know to tell that's you, good. but it's like, yeah. it's on a CDN and it's serving the images on a right size. There's no way that's not delivering value, you know? I mean, um, this is on Netlify, so all the rest of the resources that come from Netlify. Netlify is also incentivized to do a good job for that stuff, but you know they can't do the same with images as you can. They're not changing the format of images automatically for you. That's not happening. But no, I can't compare it. It'd be kind of interesting to turn it on and turn it off and just and do an, an AB. It would be tremendously easy to do because you just, you know, I wonder if this shows too much or not, but who cares? Let's go for it. <laughs> couldn't help yeah. it. I just ran Lighthouse on it and it's like really high, really high performance. It's good. Oh, good. <laughs> no, thanks to me. I've never run Lighthouse on it. I'm terrible. But you can see what I mean here. Like I can just change the yeah. build command. I could say prod equals false, deploy it, check it, change it back to prod two, check it again. That'd be pretty yeah. easy to do. So one thing that I think I'm trying to take away from this, because I've seen lots of amazing work that you've ultimately done, but let's say that I'm someone that's kind of just getting into understanding how static site generators work, how Jamstack projects work. I'm kind of just putting my toe into this water. What do you recommend if someone wants to do something like what you're doing, talking about working with images in this way, what steps would you recommend for them to take? Hmm, that's a good, I mean, you're going to have images in your product, your thing, probably anyway. Like you just, you know, most websites have some images on them. So I just, I'd get that local dev story right first. You know, like pretend that you're not using any anything at all. You're just linking up your images normally, like you are. And that doesn't hurt to be aware of then what's possible with images. You know, he's like, just get it all working first and then run Lighthouse or whatever, or, or know that you're probably not doing enough with images. That feeling will probably never go away because <laughs> nobody has the perfect images set up. But just know that you're like, oh, shoot, you know, all I'm doing is linking up a PNG here. You know, like, shouldn't I at least optimize that PNG? Yeah, maybe you could wire up some kind of thing with your setup that makes sure that that PNG is optimized. But, you know, these days, PNGs almost certainly not the best format you could serve in in production. So how am I going to do that? Just know that you're probably doing it wrong and then look into options for serving the correct format and then be like, well, I'm probably serving it's too big. No, what are my options for reducing, for serving differently sized images for different devices? You just know in your head mostly that there's always something better you can do with your images and look into whatever it takes to, to do it better, knowing that some of those things might kind of be production only things that you can do. But don't like sacrifice the simplicity of your project for it. Don't like, you know, don't shoot yourself in the foot and do something that's too complex to be worth it. You know, that I, all this stuff is a trade-off. Knowing that you're never going to achieve a perfect images setup, even doing anything at all to make it better is is nice you know it's kind of like that with accessibility too i mean you should probably put a lot of effort into that but it's, it's probably not going to be right for everybody all the time so the least you can do is make it a little bit better when you can you know i feel like there's this okay. kind of guilt that we all share as web developers about the size of our images <laughs> like are we it's like we don't it's not the first focus i, I really care about the workflow you know and i, I want to get down to the point where I can, you know, like on my Mac, I can get Command Shift 4 and I can take a screenshot and it'll just show up on my desktop. 
that image is a PNG and it's probably huge. It's probably like two megabytes, you know, but I don't want any step between using that image on the web and my having taken it. If I'm writing a blog post, just take it and just drag it onto my blog post and the computer magic should happen and it should serve it perfectly from the other side out, you know, like that's how much the workflow matters to me. I don't want to be like, stop in the middle of writing a blog post and be like, Oh, I better trim that down and save <laughs> it in the right format and optimize it and then manually upload it to some other place. You know, like, I'm, no, I want super speed, super <laughs> workflow. One last question. When are custom coding fonts coming to CodePen? <laughs> you can't upload your own, but I think everyone that's my favorite is already there. <laughs> so if you go into CodePen and go to your editor settings, I think there's about 10 in there these days. Okay. Uh, Mono Lisa and Operator Mono among them, two of my favorites, but I know there's more. In fact, let me just see the list for you here real quick. Like, I can't use Comic New though. No, that one's, we've, we've passed on the email. <laughs> JetBrains Mono is on the list though. That one got really popular this year. So I know a lot of people like that one. It's free, you know, people like the free ones. Can't blame them. <laughs> so Chris, if people wanted to learn more about just what you're up to, see the next project that you're going to be working on, where do they go? Oh, I keep a personal site. I'm a big, big fan of having a personal blog. So it's my name, which is chriscoyer.net in this case. And that's kind of my personal blog, but of course links to all the other projects that I do and has some, you know, things that I would demand that you do like upgrade to pro on CodePen, obviously. And yeah, it links to a bunch of other sites that I think are cool too, because I have a blog role now. Of course, Eric, because this is going to be a guest appearance for you. It's wonderful that you've been with us for this one. Yeah. Is there any place that people can be going to be just seeing all the things that you're doing for Cloudinary or just projects that you want people to be learning more about? Mm, I don't know. You can go to my personal website, which I am terrible at updating, ericportis.com. If you really want to be in the know, look at my activity on GitHub and see all the obscure browser issues <laughs> I'm uh, chiming in on and, and trying to keep track of. <laughs> With the super fans. <laughs> yeah. As you can see, Chris is somebody that has the gift of gab. He was able to talk a lot about his project, which was so helpful for this episode. But there's also a lot of things that, as we've mentioned, he just knows about the web. He knows about what it comes to when it comes to building websites, building apps, building interesting projects. So there's a lot of things that we can take away from this episode. Becky, what were some of those for you? Well, one thing was we have a number of ways at Cloudinary that you can get an image into Cloudinary so that you can use some of the optimization, such as the formats um, and the quality control, things like that. And what I really liked was the way that Chris sort of hijacks other URLs using the Cloudinary fetch. Is If he can like grab that URL and attach it to his cloud's domain, he can actually take advantage of all transformations available at Cloudinary, but in particular, he can do his optimization that way. And so I think this is a technique that is beneficial to a lot of people. And 
you know, Cloudinary will let you do, you know, you can upload a remote URL and have that image sitting there in your cloud. You can use auto upload fetch, you know, where you're doing some mappings and preparing ahead of time. But Chris has used one of our features, Fetch, to just grab that URL on the fly and do his optimization. So I, I really like that, you know, from a training point of view, that is something that we really want to communicate. And I think this is a good example of it. I completely agree. And it is one of those cases where when we're talking with people that are using Cloudinary, whether they're a customer or sometimes even our various partners, they are asking, what should I be doing? Should I be doing just a standard upload? Should I be uploading from a remote URL? Should I be pulling from local source? Should I be using this fetch technology that you have? So I think what this really highlights is that fetch can be a really good use case for a project. And it definitely shows how this can be also extremely helpful when you are doing things where a server is not involved in any way. Going and pulling something like you have with fetch can be a really good useful tool so i i really was really really happy to see what chris was able to share with that and i think it, there's a lot of innovation there but what's also interesting about it to me is that kind of as a teaser but in our next episode we're even going to be talking about more ways that people are utilizing serverless functions like we were seeing with netlify seeing some of the ways that people are using fetch but instead of using it for external images like we were showing with the situation where we saw the code samples this is now where or the font samples in that case but we're going to be doing it for more things that are kind of behind the scenes, like open graph images to help highlight some of those blog posts. So there's just a lot that can ultimately be unpackaged with how Fetch is being used, but also how Puppeteer is being used too. Yeah, Puppeteer is really neat. I mean, I, that's kind of an understatement almost, because when I first learned about it, it was in doing end-to-end -end testing. So you know, Puppeteer could take snapshots, uh, you'd, you know, you'd run your test, click a few buttons, run it all the way back to the database, bring back the data, and then you take a snapshot. And it was set up so that you could like visually diff your end results. I mean, and that was really cool. But now we're seeing Puppeteer used to take screenshots for many different interesting things. You know, and in this case, rather than going into maintaining uh, code inside your Jamstack pages, just take a snapshot, optimize it and load it. And I think that's really neat. I mean, to start getting into using images, you know, and being able to take pictures, essentially, you know, because Puppeteer is like this headless Chrome, you can do actually tons with it, but this ability to take pictures, it, it allows you to create your own URL to image service. And so I got inspired. And I actually went out, I said, I got to see how this works. And like, what if I wanted to do a purely front end? Because sometimes I don't like to set up authentication. I don't want to deal with tokens and all that. And Cloudinary has this unsigned preset authentication. So I can just go into my Cloudinary account, create a named unsigned preset. And I've sort of gotten, if anyone knows that particular name, they could go to my front end and use it. So I have this little app and I want to make a screenshot. So let's just do Cloudinary. Say I'm like a baseball card collector, but I collect images of people's screens, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Actually, this is, I don't know, what is the best use case? I don't really have one. I just wanted to play around. So, and my cloud name. So I have a cloud out there on Cloudinary. 
my account called Picture Cloud 7, okay? And then I created an unsigned preset and I'll have to destroy this after showing this because I don't want anyone to start using this particular preset. And that's my authentication. It's simple and cloudinary as, you know, going to your settings, doing a little bit of upload, coming down and creating unsigned presets. So real easy to set up. But now that I have this and I've got this app and I, I can show you some of that, I've got a Netlify Lambda function, serverless function that is gonna take a picture for me and it's gonna send me back the base 64 data. So many ways I could have configured this. I could have you know, actually done the upload on the back end, but here I'm doing it on the front end. I'm just letting Netlify, my Netlify function take a picture and then send it back. Upload comes back and I get the URL and I post it here. And then if I go to my Cloudinary account, I've got that picture uploaded. So easy way for me to start my collection of screenshots. And the code is so simple. I mean, I'm just using straight JavaScript HTML, but because I'm using Netlify, I can create this Lambda function and I can then bring in Chromium. I can have it set up this backend browser, take the picture, pull in my base 64 image, and then just return that image to my front end. So that is one way to do it. Obviously you could have the backend do the upload, but again, you'd wanna set up more advanced authentication. This is showing once again, that Puppeteer is a fantastic tool. And I really do think that more developers should be taking the time to go through it because now we can see with Chris, as well as this project that you've gone and built, there's lots of opportunities to do interesting things with it. What I also just love about this is now it's showing two ways because we showed that Chris had gone and has all the code available on his GitHub. We're going to make the code available for your project available in this way. So now we'll get some more flavors. And as we also said, Puppeteer is going to be something we focus on in our next episode, where we're going to be talking with somebody that's using this for open graph images. So you're going to have lots of different ways to see how Puppeteer and Cloudinary, as well as Netlify, can all play together in interesting ways. So this is going to be something that I think, as a developer, if you wanted to learn about this, we're going to have a lot of resources available to you. Yeah, and I hope that this episode helps people to kind of get a hint at some very, you know, great functionality that they can now dig into. You know, these are like tools in a toolkit, you know, and then when you're trying to build something new or solve a problem, you can kind of think about these techniques. Absolutely. Now, a couple of closing notes here before we end our episode. Of course, if you are watching this on the Cloudinary Academy, we're very happy about that because Becky and I spend a lot of time developing coursework, tutorials, and running classes that are associated with our overall academy. So thank you for doing that. And if you like and share this episode in that way, so if you like it personally, you decide to share it on a social network of your choice like Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, send us a link to that share. And you can just simply do that by emailing support at cladinary.com. Once they receive it, they'll increase your Cladinary plan credit by one credit, which will help with just those little bits of bandwidth overages or storage or transformations you have when you're working on that next big project. Lastly, if you're watching this somewhere else other than the Cladinary Academy, 
that's great too. And make sure that you are liking and subscribing on that channel so you get immediate notifications when we put out the next episode of Dev Jams and all future content coming from Cloudinary that's video based. Becky, anything else you want to tell our listeners or viewers before we let them go? Well, just that if you like this episode, stay tuned for the next one because we, we do another twist on this. Completely agree. Come back. We've got more for you. And thank you again. Thank you again. This is an initial program. This is something where we're, this is only episode two, and we hope to have hundreds of these, frankly. So thank you for being part of this initial journey talking with our developer community about all things that they're doing with Cloudinary for their personal, professional, hobbyist projects. Mm -hmm.